Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, glad you're here. It's the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy for you. Brought to you today by Honey. Uh, just go to joinhoney.com slash martini to save yourself money online this Christmas season. Jim, a little bit of housekeeping on the uh, Hallmark discussion from yesterday. It's always fun when the topics that get the most feedback are the ones that have nothing to do with politics. But uh, hey, that's what people are fired up about. So that's fine. Got a little bit of feedback from my wife. Most of all, she loved it. Uh, She enjoyed the, uh, I don't know what you called it, the Hallmark uh, Mysteries and Massacres channel, if we were to air Die Hard. Uh, Definitely a fan of that. She said, though, I forgot to talk about her uh, catchphrase about explaining the uh, significance of Hallmark movies, which is true, because she has said this a number of times. She says it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And so just because you know which two people are getting together at the end, doesn't mean it's not worth it to watch how it happens. I would say it tends to remain quite formulaic about how they get together, but, uh, uh, you know, she and and, and, uh, lots of other people like that, I guess. Hallmark uh, will be very happy to hear that, and they'll crank out more of these things. You know, Greg, um, as luck would have it, yes, we were watching one of the Hallmark, or at least my wife started falling asleep to one of the Hallmark Christmas movies. One of the other channels, I think it was Up, did called A Christmas Movie Christmas, which is about two sisters who are not Hallmark movie characters who get sucked into a Hallmark movie type situation (laughs) and are self-aware. And it was delightful. It was everything I wanted to see where they said, oh, look, he drew a handmade Christmas card of you sleeping. That means he looked in my window and he's a stalker. (laughs) Brilliant. Wonderful. So kudos to you, Up Network. Uh, Look, I do. I, I understand the appeal of it. I like it. You know what it is? In an era where everything's trying to be edgy and kind of in your face or something like that, man, you know, Hallmark Channel Christmas movies are just like, there are no sharp edges in any of them. <laughs> the other thing I forgot to mention yesterday, and I don't feel like this has been a plot line a lot until the last couple of years, and it absolutely grinds my gears when I do have to watch these things, and that's that uh, usually the the original hard-charging person who's focused on their career They've been chasing this professional dream forever, and finally they get the offer they've been waiting for. They can move to Paris. They can be a partner in the law firm. They can do whatever it is they've dreamed of doing, but the offer came 48 hours after they met this special person who they couldn't tell you five things about, and now it's become the biggest burden of their lives. You know, we're going to do our end-of-the-year awards as Christmas (laughs) gets closer. Why are all these firms having big meetings on Christmas Eve or other, you know, uh, uh, it's always the big project is due on Christmas Day. Like, who, who, who's setting the workplace schedules at these places? It's one thing if you're closing a massive international business deal like the Nakatomi Corporation, but... Uh, <laughs> That's exactly. There are certain circumstances. Yes, exactly. Actually, since we're on it, we will, we will talk politics today, folks. We promise. Greg, does Die Hard take place on Christmas Eve? I believe so. I've never gotten a, a sense that it was very clear one way or the other. It's clearly very close to Christmas. But, you know, I, I, I don't know if they ever say explicitly one way or the other. Anyway, one of the mysteries of, of eternity. I guess we have to watch it every year. I guess we're just going to have to watch it again just to clarify that point. But uh, hmm, burdens that we do for our listeners. All right, uh, Jim, let's get to our good martini now. And uh, we've been pretty tough on President Trump for his... Uh, 
fairly passive response to uh, what the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong. Uh, very quiet for the most part. He's thrown out a few tweets here and there about the protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, we feel like he could be more vocal about that. We know he's trying to secure the trade deal, but uh, and he did sign the legislation that passed uh, in recent days, which the Chinese don't like. But the president has tweeted today and an important clarification about the situation in Iran. We don't see as much about Iran because they've cut off internet access. There's basically a Western media blackout there, and uh, it's very difficult to get good information out of there. But nonetheless, uh, as a result of jacking up fuel prices, in some cases 50%, all the way up to, in some cases, 300%, uh, the Iranian people have had enough. They think the Iranians are way too focused on meddling in international affairs while the domestic issues get ignored and the people suffer. Uh, so they're taking to the streets. The Iranian government, to no surprise, is repressing them. We have estimates anywhere from 180 to 600 people dead, thousands more injured, and many more thousands than that arrested in some cases, according to the opposition, arbitrarily. So what to do here? President Trump was at a, a NATO gathering uh, in London where he initially seemed to suggest that he didn't support the Iranian protesters. He was asked if he did. He says, I don't want to comment on that. But the answer is no, I don't want to comment on that. But then he tweets out, the United States of America supports the brave people of Iran who are protesting for their freedom, in all caps, we have under the Trump administration and always will. Jim, I don't think it's any great mystery that is the position, given Trump's position towards the Iranians and the nuclear deal and the fact that he doesn't trust them uh, all along here in his administration. But the fact that he's out there publicly, we'd like to see it a lot more, especially as the violence against the Ar Iranian citizens uh, continues. But this is a good first step. There are times where this president, the way he looks at foreign policy and his lack of interest in human rights and things like that can really drive me bonkers. But there are other areas where it does appear that Trump takes a tougher stance, certainly than the Obama administration, and that um, it seems like his instincts might be in the right direction. And Iran is a big one, right? He did not, he did not, you know, like the Iran nuclear deal. He did not trust them, uh, scrapped it, and has generally taken a tougher stance than the Obama administration ever did. The Obama administration seemed to believe that there was some sort of grand bargain to be achieved with the mullahs and that if we just reach, you know, John Kerry was practically buying a condo in Geneva because he was meeting with them every single week. First of all, the, the, there was this big uprising very early in the Obama administration, the Green Revolution, the shooting of I believe it was a woman named Nadan um, back then. And the Obama administration wasn't interested in that, that this was not something that they uh, were looking for. This was and the, the Obama administration had the most tepid response to this. I believe they decided they were not going to invite the Iranian diplomatic community to the 4th of July barbecues at American embassies overseas. Okay, for those of you who haven't, you know, uh, at U.S. embassies, it's a big deal. Everybody's national day gets treated as a big deal. Usually you invite, as you know, a whole bunch of diplomats. We we're going to invite you to the barbecue. Take that, Iran. You know, <laughs> it didn't really have much of an impact. There's a quite a bit of discontent in the Iranian people about how they are ruled, about how the, the, the uh, uh, brutality, oppression, things like that. Now, it's worth noting, if, you, if, if the mullahs were overthrown tomorrow, there's no guarantee that whatever regime replaced them would be that much more cooperative on the issue of nuclear energy and nuclear arms. By and large, the average Iranian in the street really does think his country should have a nuclear weapon, and that's going to be a pretty significant problem. But having said that, given a choice between a democratically elected regime who might be a little more willing to play ball and might be a little more reasonable and wouldn't talk as much about chanting death to America and we're going to wipe the, the Israelis off the map and stuff like that, 
conceivably that could be better. So my attitude is that for the United States, we have every interest in the world in seeing as much popular discontent against the Iranian mullahs as possible. And so it's frustrating. Now, I'm also kind of struck by how little attention this has gotten. You mentioned the news blackout that's at work there. Um, the degree to which uh, it's difficult to get good and reliable information out of Iran, particularly outside of the capital city. Um, but it says there's, you know, there's genuine discontent there. And I think we in the United States and those who are opposed to this kind of Islamist regime should be spotlighting this and saying, look, these guys do a lousy job of take care, taking care of their people. We're not saying we have all the answers. We're not saying our way has to work for everyone. But clearly, this form of government, which does not respect the rights of the people, is something we can all get together and say, hey, this has to, this has to change. This is, you know, um, this is the sort of thing where anytime there's a fire, we should be metaphorically be pouring gasoline on it. So good for you, Mr. President. Please keep it up. The UN's kind of like a pro wrestling referee sometimes, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the Iranians butcher their own people, uh, Chinese repress their own people, uh, concentration camps and so forth. And they're just yawning and distracted by something else. Uh, the Israelis fire back at Hamas and it's uh, like the world's about to end. It's just amazing. I was gonna say, you know, the real problem, the Israelis. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, of course you went. All right. Well, let's talk about something uh, more pleasant than uh, the UN's uh, complete uh, bias in uh, international affairs. And that's the fact that Christmas is coming up. The holidays are upon us and giving holiday gifts is great, but it's also pretty expensive. I mean, your grocery bill from Thanksgiving is already staring you in the face and now you've got all these gifts and, and possibly parties and, and meals coming up, people coming into town. It's an expensive time of year. And then, of course, you got people giving you gifts that uh, you didn't expect to get gifts from. So then you feel like you have to get them something. And the, the, the list just piles higher and higher and higher. But you still love to do it because Christmas time is great. But overspending on all those gifts is definitely not great. So find the best prices on the things you want to get for the people that you care about. And the best way to do that is with Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that automatically finds the best promo codes Whenever you shop online, it does the work for you. And that means you can always get the best deals without even trying on over 20,000 sites. We're talking about Amazon, eBay, J.Crew, Sephora, Expedia, Target, Best Buy, and many, many more. 20,000 sites. And so when you do that, you're going to know that you've got the best price on whatever it is you want to buy because Honey's already figured out the whole thing. You don't have to go hunting for coupons or promo codes or anything else. It simplifies the process absolutely as much as it can be simplified. And you're going to feel good about that, especially when you see the credit card bill after the holidays. You know, Cyber Monday was yesterday. We've got about three weeks before Christmas, right around the same amount of time for Hanukkah. You do not have a lot of time to get your holiday shopping done. Uh, you got to leave some time for shipping and deliveries. Busy time of year for Amazon, all those other folks. You know, get it done. And when you're doing that online shopping, you're going to want to have honey. Honey has found it's more than 10 million members, more than a billion dollars, billion with a B in savings. Honey supports more than 20,000 stores online, and Honey has more than 100,000 five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. Hard to beat that. If you're buying gifts this Christmas and other holiday season, then you need Honey. If you're not, you probably know someone who is, so do them a big favor and tell them about Honey. Honey can help make sure that you're getting the best price for whatever you're buying. It's free to use and literally installs in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash martini. That's joinhoney.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now. And you would think a Republican governor who's got pretty good conservative credentials replacing a retiring 
and resigning Republican senator wouldn't be that controversial or complicated, but oh, here we are. Georgia, as most of you know, has uh, two Senate seats that'll be on the ballot in 2020. David Perdue is running for re-election. That one's fairly simple, although he's probably going to have to run against John Ossoff. But Johnny Isaacson, who's not up till 2022, has uh, suffered from a number of health problems, uh, including Parkinson's, and uh, he's resigning at the end of the year. In fact, he's giving his farewell speech on the Senate floor today. And that means that Governor Brian Kemp, yes, he's the real governor of Georgia. Sorry, Stacey Abrams, you don't get to make this appointment. Uh, gets to name the replacement for Senator Isaacson until the voters get their say in November of next year. And President Trump, as he is wont to do, uh, has weighed in on this, says he wants Doug Collins to be the next senator from Georgia. Collins is the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee and has been very active in defending the president on impeachment and a number of other issues. And so... That's what the president wants, but that's not what Brian Kemp is doing. He's going to go with a longtime Republican donor named Kelly Leffler. She's the co-owner of the Atlanta Dream WNBA team, and uh, she's been active as a donor in in Republican politics, and some uh, Democrats have gotten her money over the years as well, which is pretty common in business. Uh, But uh, the folks who are absolutely loyal to President Trump, no matter what, are furious with Brian Kemp. Uh, Matt Gates, uh, Florida, also on the Judiciary Committee, tweeted this out just a couple of days ago. Uh, Donald Trump told you, meaning Governor Kemp, how to be supportive. Appoint Doug Collins. You are ignoring his request because you think you know better than POTUS. If you substitute your judgment for the president's, maybe you need a primary in 2022. Let's see if you can win one without Trump. So this is the governor's call after all. So uh, for those who uh, aren't happy with him defying the president, you have those saying uh, it's his call. I'm sure he'll pick someone fine. Uh, Let's just not freak out here, like Sean Hannity's doing and telling his listeners to to protest the choice of Kelly Leffler. But now we've got a problem with Kelly Leffler because Marjorie Dannenfelser, who is the head of the Susan B. Anthony list, one of the most prominent pro-life organizations, says Leffler's deep ties to the abortion industry makes her an unacceptable pick because she serves on the board of Grady Health, a hospital system affiliated with Emory Medical School, which is the largest training program for abortionists in Georgia. She's also got some connections with Planned Parenthood and some of the ticket sales from the WNBA team go to Planned Parenthood. So, Jim, this should have been pretty simple. Uh, It's clearly not. Uh, Kemp's now getting heat from both sides. And what this means is he's not only gotten potentially in Trump's doghouse, but uh, we could be having a fairly ugly Senate primary next year at a time when uh, we don't need a lot of distractions. Yeah. And look, it's astounding that this could go so wrong so fast. Um, I've seen some people saying, oh, you know, Collins would be a terrific pick. He'd be a great warrior for the president in impeachment. Look, Trump's not getting removed. <laughs> so I don't really like why. Like, are, are we worried about this? Does he really, you know, like, do you think there's any Republican who could be named to that Senate seat in Georgia who would end up, who's, who's you know, one of the first big decisions they'd face is, Yep, I'm going to impeach the president. I suppose it's theoretically possible, but if you want to get reelected, then no, no, you don't. Um, it's worth noting that after after being, you know, probably for about two decades, a really Republican state, uh, you know, or, or at least an increasingly Republican state, uh, you know, that last election did go uh, not quite as as uh, comfortable margin for Republicans as they're used to. We enjoy kind of chuckling at Stacey Abrams. But let's face it, for a Democrat to come within 50,000 votes in a statewide race is pretty darn good. And it suggests 
one or two percent more, you could probably end up winning. The Republicans lost one of those uh, House districts in the, in the Atlanta suburbs. It's reasonable for, for Republicans in Georgia to be a little bit nervous about keeping these Senate seats and wanting to do well in the suburbs. And on the one hand, this is, you know, the, the, the candidate uh, uh, who owns the WNBA could conceivably do a little bit better, who's a woman who conceivably could do a little bit better um, than your average uh, woman, than your average Republican candidate. Um, I don't understand why people are flipping out about how dare, you know, like the idea of this sort of betrayal of the president. Look, it's the governor's call, not the president's call. Um, Greg, I've also decided that for all news stories going forward, anyone whose last name is Gase or sounds like Gase at all is automatically wrong. <laughs> Just waiting how long it will take everyone to figure that out. But yeah, you know, that, uh, that basically, I, 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 the only way this really turns into a huge issue is if large numbers of Repub Georgia Republicans get so upset about not getting the one they would have preferred that they either stay home or decide to launch an expensive and, and divisive primary challenge or something like that, as long as all Republicans in Georgia say, hey, you know what, we want to have somebody who's going to vote with us 90-some percent of the time in that seat, this is going to be fine, then the Republicans should do okay. Naturally, it will not happen, and it will probably go terribly wrong for Republicans because we apparently we can't all get along now. And you know, you'd like to think that if you know Trump would you know accept that the the governor went in a different direction, I hope the president accepts that. I would not be the least bit surprised if he ended up backing a primary challenge or something just out of you know sheer anger and spite that somebody picked someone else other than the person he wanted. Prove me wrong, Mr. President. I'd love to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, don't hold your breath on that one. So uh, Kemp, for his part, has said that uh, he will absolutely appoint someone who is pro-life. So that's uh, obviously designed to uh, calm the fears of those who, who think that uh, a Republican senator from Georgia might be pro-choice. Don't know how many votes there will be in the Senate to uh, confirm that one way or the other. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of judicial votes uh, during her time in office. Not sure how much else other than a uh, conviction or acquittal vote coming up in the early part of next year, probably. Jim, let's uh, talk about 2020 a little more. Let's uh, move over to the Democratic presidential race because Morning Consult is out with a new poll gauging where the Democratic hopefuls are in the early primary states. And that means Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Those are the states that will vote in February. In, not in that order. I think Nevada's actually third. Biden is still in first. Then it's Bernie Sanders. Then it's Elizabeth Warren, who is fading quite a bit from her peak where she had kind of eclipsed Joe Biden in some of the early states and even nationally. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is in fourth and now tied for fifth at 5%. The tanking Kamala Harris and the rising Michael Bloomberg, who's been in this thing for about two weeks, which I'm sure has uh, John Delaney banging his head against the wall since he's been in this thing for about two and a half years now and is not even on the board. Jim, uh, this is uh, proof positive, I guess, that if you can uh, blanket the Internet and cable news with a lot of ads in a short period of time, people are going to pay attention. Maybe it's because he comes in with some name recognition, but uh, maybe Michael Bloomberg will make a bigger splash than we initially thought here. Yeah, uh, over in the corner today, I wrote a little bit about Kamala Harris and her, you know, rapid tumble. Uh, and think about this was somebody who was once considered arguably in the top tier, hitting 2% in a national poll came out uh, on Monday. But I think the bigger story here is Bloomberg. And, uh, you know, uh, last week we were chatting on on the editors, which is uh, probably the, easily the second best podcast produced by National Review. Um <laughs> You know, the, the, the question was, you know, how, how, how big a deal is Bloomberg joining the race? And I pointed out that Tom Steyer, who is not 
uh, I, I described it as a walking black hole of charisma, uh, kind of emanates anti-charisma, <laughs> was at 4% in New Hampshire and South Carolina and uh, Nevada. And this is, you know, and what it happens, it's because, you know, Steyer's running a lot of ads in those states. Now, that's what got Tom Steyer on that debate stage. It certainly wasn't, you know, uh, you know, he, he got the requisite number of donors. And for a certain amount of people who are going to vote in, in either party's primary, if, you, if somebody calls up and says, hey, you're gonna, who are you going to vote for in the primary? They're probably going to answer the last, the, the first name that pops into their head. And if the last thing they saw was a Tom Steyer ad, oh, yeah, Tom Steyer, that ad looks good. You know, he, he seems all right. Now, they may or may not end up voting that way. But that, you know, look, running a ton of ads and flooding the airwaves is going to be enough to get you to that 2 3 4%, whatever that threshold was for the debate. Um, and if it could do that for Tom Steyer, who's never done, a, done anything in his life, Mike Bloomberg, who could say, I was a three-term mayor for New York City, I was the mayor right after 9-11, and who had to manage a great deal of the reconstruction of Ground Zero, uh, crime generally continued to decline on my watch, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg can point, like, we enjoy making fun of the, the, the large soda ban and all the other nanny impulses he has, and he's really bad in all of that area. But it's worth saying that you know, he got reelected twice. Um, now he spent about a bazillion dollars per vote, but nonetheless, you know, the, the, most people in New York City were pre reasonably happy with him. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Bill De Blasio comes along and makes you know Bloomberg look like a genius who they yearn <laughs> for the return of. Um, so Mike Bloomberg could end up, I think, being a bigger splash than that. I think running a whole bunch of TV ads, like thirty million, you know, nationwide in a one week span can get Michael Bloomberg's name ID up really fast. And it can get people mentioning that sort of thing. So I, I think, you know, Mike Bloomberg is somebody who, I think before this is done, we're going to start talking about him in that uh, lower first tier, upper second tier category, if he's not there already. I, I really think he's a, uh, and this is not liking the guy at all, but this is an observation that, look, having near unlimited amount of money to throw to campaign does make a difference. And, uh, you know, all of these other nice senators in this are, who, are, who are being lapped by him uh, are learning a very hard lesson about what it takes to succeed in politics these days. Jim, what alternative universe did we stumble into where Michael Bloomberg is winning the charisma battle among billionaires? I mean, Tom Steyer is <laughs> so bad that Michael Bloomberg seems refreshing by comparison. Do you know why you and I are not billionaires, Greg? <laughs> why? We're just too charismatic. <laughs> How do we explain Trump then? I don't know if charisma is the right word. But, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> Trump has charisma. Trump can command a room. I'll give him, you know. No, I guess you're right. I guess, you know, so, so I guess it's not antithesis of, of that. But uh, look, you know, I will be laughing very, very hard if the Democratic if the Democrats decide the guy they want to take on Trump to convince America we can't keep Trump is a different Manhattan billionaire with arrogant, <laughs> dismissive, and, and all that stuff. Making this cycle a little more interesting right towards the end. Uh, a couple other quick notes here from this, mainly one uh, note, but uh, they also ask, uh, who's your second choice? And uh, for Buttigieg supporters, it's Biden, which shouldn't surprise anyone. For Sanders and Warren, it's each other, which should surprise no one. But for Biden supporters, it's Sanders, which I would not have expected. It must be the um, elderly uh, aspect there. <laughs> They're both pushing 80, uh, I guess. But uh, Jim, the big news, obviously, from the campaign over the last... 24 hours is that both Steve Bullock and Joe Sestak have dropped out of the Democratic race. Uh, I'm sure that'll completely reshuffle the deck as we head into the early states here. I mean, it's a, it's a huge question, Greg. Who's going to get their supporter? <laughs> I, 
right now i'll make one i'm sorry so joe sestak's campaign a good sense of how you know how how desperate were they for media attention they reached out to me asking if i wanted an interview um and joe sestak is a very pleasant guy he spent most of his adult life in the navy reached the the rank of uh of admiral you know god, god bless him um he's done stuff with his life outside of politics outside of um the realm of, of, you know, climbing the greasy pole of politics and stuff like that. Uh, I found her to be an old school throw, throwback candidate in a lot of ways. And, you know, if you, if you made me vote for a Democrat, you could do a lot less, do a lot worse for Joe Sestak. And let me also point out, Joe Sestak is the guy who ended Arlen Specter's career in politics. People may remember <laughs> Arlen Specter, Republican senator for a lot of years. Uh, then as the Obama administration began, he voted for a couple of big Obama initiatives uh, early on, like the stimulus. And Arlen Specter decided as a matter of principle uh, that he wanted to remain senator and that he wasn't going to do so if he was in the, the Republican primary. Pat Toomey was coming along like a freight train, nearly beat him in the primary six years earlier. And uh, so he switched parties. And, you know, he just kind of expected, OK, I'm a Democrat now. Everybody has to love me over here. And quite a few Democrats, you know, in the Democratic Party leadership back in Pennsylvania just said, yeah, let's go with this guy. And a whole bunch of rack and file Democrats were like, no, 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 no. And Joe Sestak was the guy who said, no, we want an actual Democrat to be our nominee, not, not some you know recent free agent signing uh, from a guy who we've been campaigning against for the past six or seven election cycles. And uh, you know, Sestak beat him in the Democratic primary. I know Sestak lost it to me, uh, but you know, I, you know, for a guy who's who's you know. Uh, a field full of like, who are these people? You know, Joe Sestak, I think, deserved more attention than he got. He got almost no attention. Um, and as for Bullock, you know, he was trying to make the argument, hey, Democrats, you should pay attention to red states. You should pay attention to people who voted for Trump. You should pay attention to rural America. And Greg, the general reaction from Democrats was, um, nah. Well, a lot of it uh, is how, who the media pays attention to, and that's how folks even know who's in this thing. But uh uh, Bullock and, and Sestak just never had a chance. You'll see the Democrats pushing Bullock hard now to run for Senate in Montana. We'll see if he actually does it, a la John Hickenlooper in Colorado. But, uh, Jim, it's a full day here at the Three Martini Lunch. I can't, uh, I can't take another bite or another sip, so I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our friends over at Honey and save money on that Christmas shopping. Joinhoney.com slash martini. And tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.